The question for you today, it has to do with disagreement and tension. If you're walking into a situation where you know there will be disagreement and tension, there's no question that it's going to arise, what do you do? You're nervous, maybe a knot in your stomach, some butterflies, some sweaty hands, and you have two choices, right? Fight or flight. Is there another option? As we study our way through the book of Acts, learning from the Holy Spirit, what it would mean for us to begin to share good news about Jesus with our neighbors. We've wound up in Acts chapter 17 today. The Apostle Paul is on the second of three journeys across the uh, ancient Near East, and he's come into Europe, into Greece, and today he arrives in the city of Athens. He's looked around the city. He's seen evidence of the religious worship there, hundreds of altars and idols and temples and statues everywhere. He's been going to the synagogues to share there good news about Jesus with any who would gather, but also in the marketplace, the ancient Agora. The scripture tells us that he would speak about Jesus to any who happened to be there. Some philosophers heard what Paul was saying there in that setting, and they invited him to a place called the Areopagus. Here's a picture. The Areopagus is a hill, and this picture is the hill in the foreground, and it looks over to a higher hill called the Acropolis, and you can see that there were dozens of temples on the top of the Acropolis. The Areopagus, the closer and smaller of these two hills, was a place where a council met. That council had no real official status in the city of Athens, but they were the traditional guardians of the culture of the city. And so they heard this new preacher talking about gods they had never heard of before, one named Jesus and another named Anastasis. That's the Greek word for resurrection. Apparently there was some confusion. that People thought Paul was talking about a goddess named resurrection. So they invited Paul to appear before this council to speak. So can you imagine being in that place? You've come to faith in Jesus as the Lord over all things, and you're standing on this hill and looking across just a few hundred yards away, you see the evidence that not everybody in the audience is going to agree with what you have to say. There's going to be disagreement. There's going to be some tension. What will Paul do? Is it a time for fight? Is it a time to just pack up and leave, make some polite excuse, flight? Or is there another option? Let's hear, as the scripture is read today, by one of our middle school graduates. This scripture reading comes from Acts 17, 22-34. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects in your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made this world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your po own poems have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he has commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment and pray together as we prepare to hear more about the scriptures. God be with us and open our hearts. There are many things every day that distract us from you. But in this time, we are gathering together not in the same place, but alongside many others to worship you, to draw near to you. And we want to draw near now and hear from you. Would you teach us through your words? In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of years ago, I had the privilege of, of conducting a membership interview with one of our uh, then high schoolers. It was a joy to sit down and talk with her about her faith in Christ and hear more about why she trusted Jesus and uh, just a delightful conversation. And as it came to a close, I presented her with a charge. I said, you know, I, I want to remind you of your calling to be a missionary in your high school. And unfolding that, said, you know, m many assume that Christians are narrow-minded and mean-spirited. So many of your classmates, many of your teachers, many of the people you pass in the hallway every day have these kind of assumptions about what Christians might be like. And, and I asked her to, to lean into her calling, to engage the people around her in such a way that they, would, that they would do a double take, that they would say, wait a minute, I, I, I kind of think of Christians as narrow-minded, but I know this person and she's... She's willing to think deeply about things. She, she's willing to take my questions seriously. I, I, wait a minute. I, I tend to think of Christians as pretty mean-spirited and unloving people. But I know her, and she's not like that. She's kind and gracious. And, and in that way, each of us can be a, a missionary in the places that God has planted us, pushing back by our own lives and the way we engage with people against these assumptions about what it might mean 
to follow Jesus. Jesus is shaping each of us to be missionaries in the places that he has put us. And part of our calling is to be prepared to share good news about him. From Acts chapter 17, I want us to see a couple aspects of that. One, we'll have to do with learning to share good news as we engage our culture. That's next week's topic. Today, we want to ask, what does it mean to share good news about Jesus by engaging our neighbors? We'll start here. Engaging our neighbors happens in the real world. So as we read this text, we, we understand that, that Jesus hasn't put us in some fairy tale or make-believe setting. We live in a real world. And as the Apostle Paul came into the city of Athens in the first century, he encountered the realities of the culture of Athens. We read about those here in our scripture reading. Paul was standing on this hill, the Areopagus, and uh, he said to the people gathered there, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. That was a reality of culture in Athens. There was religion everywhere. There were hundreds of gods and goddesses and abstract qualities like justice and hope and maybe even people thought resurrection um, as Paul was introducing that new name to them. This was a reality of life in Athens. So Paul could say in verse 23, As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Uh, there are writings from ancient Greek historians that confirm that this was the case, that there were many altars throughout Athens to gods that people didn't know. It was kind of the idea of saying, we, we know that there is a great God out there, but we don't know very much about that God. And so to be sure that we're still pleasing this God that we know so little about, we're going to set up an altar to the unknown God. There were some altars that said to the unknown gods, just to maybe be safe and cover all the gods that people didn't know. So in light of that reality, there was a very real expectation of what, what would have happened when Paul came before this council. People were expecting him to introduce them to these new gods named Jesus and resurrection that he had been talking about. And so the, the council of, of uh, the Areopagus would have to then decide, will we let these new gods or goddesses be introduced into the religious culture of our city? They would have been expecting Paul to ask for permission to buy some land and build a temple and set up an altar. So this is why Paul goes on to say in verse 24, the God I'm talking about made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made by man. I'm not going to ask you for permission to buy land and build a temple. He is not served by human hands. He doesn't need the offerings and sacrifices that we would bring to an altar. I am not here to ask you for that kind of permission. And those gathered in this council would have expected Paul to introduce them to a god or gods that he had brought from a place far away. Strange gods. Uh, verse 18 says, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. 
Gods that come from another land, far away. And now he's going to introduce them. And so listen to how Paul says, no, not at all. This God is near to us. He doesn't need to be introduced by someone like me. He is already here. And he says uh, in verse 27, he is actually not far from each one of us. So as you read those things, don't, don't hear it as sort of religious speak. Well, this is the kind of stuff the Bible says because the Bible's not a real book. It's kind of this fairy tale thing. Now, this is absolute reality. This is what history looks and feels like in first century Athens. And so now Paul has to talk about something else that's in our real world. The reality of God's revelation. You see, in verses 27 to 31, Paul is saying, you know, th there is this sense that, that we all have that we should seek truth about the God who made us and the world we live in. There is this sense we have that this could not have all come from nowhere. If it did all come from nowhere, then there is no right and wrong. There is just is. And nobody can live that way. So, so we want to seek the God who's responsible for all of this. And yet, and yet the best we can do is hope to feel our way toward him. Verse 27 says, the word for feeling there could be translated grope. Like b blind people groping their way, hoping that they might stumble across this God. The search for God on our own yields some truth about him. That, that he exists, for example. That he exists and is greater than we know. So the, the Athenians make an altar to an unknown God. We can know something about this God, but not everything that we would want to. And so that is why God has done something about it. He stepped into our world to make himself known. So instead of us feeling our way toward him, he has come toward us. And he has acted in our world through Jesus. And he has sent out the message about himself and what he has done through Jesus. Initially through the preaching of Jesus himself and then through the words of the apostles of Jesus as they spread throughout the world. And then as those words were written down through the scriptures, God has made himself known in our world, in time, and space, in flesh and blood, in human history. As Paul says to the Athenians, a man whom he has appointed has come into the world. That man's name is Jesus. God hasn't left us to grope blindly toward him here's a uh, a little image that uh, i'll give credit to david fisk for this concept and to christina work for creating the visual to go with it god's truth is this big green uh rectangle you see there and and the the smaller green circles are people and you'll notice that there's various degrees of overlap how much of god's truth do we really understand well, if we were one of the Athenians groping our way toward God, there might be very little overlap. Some overlap. You can still know something of truth about God, 
even if you haven't heard of his revelation about himself. But what God is in the business of doing is grabbing that circle and pulling it closer to himself, drawing near and showing himself to us so that our grasp of his truth becomes more and more. And in this real world where God reveals himself to us through Jesus, through the scriptures, he uses us to bring good news about Jesus to our neighbors. We engage our neighbors in the real world that God has made, in the real world where God is making himself known. And he will use us as part of that process. That brings us to another point today. Engaging, engaging our neighbors is not the same as withdrawing or dominating. Dominating is the fight posture. Withdrawing is the flight option. Engaging is neither one of those. Now, this is a concept that I'm borrowing from another author who talks about these options of withdrawing versus engaging and dominating. What do those look like in our everyday relationships? So what we'll say here applied to evangelism can be applied to any form of interacting with other people. Withdrawing, withdrawing treats other people like they are a test. You are a test and I'm afraid of failing. I am a, I'm, I'm not going to keep my mouth shut about Jesus because I am afraid that I don't know what to say. I'm afraid of how you will react. I'm afraid that there might be awkwardness and tension around this conversation. It's a test and I won't pass it. So I'm going to play it safe. I'm just going to stay quiet. I'm going to avoid deep conversations in this relationship with you. In relationship with other people who believe what I do, I'm willing to go deep. But, but if, if I don't know that we're on the same page about truth, about God, about spiritual things, about Jesus, I'm just going to stay quiet and I'm just going to keep it on the surface. Because, now here's a paradox, I, I want to value relationship over truth. The relationship has to stay shallow but I'm afraid that if we press too deep and get down to truth, it will destroy or distort or disrupt the relationship. So I'm going I'm to tell myself I'm valuing the relationship more than truth. I'm going to keep quiet. I'm going to pull back from opportunities to share good news with my neighbors about Jesus. Now, many people expect this of Christians because they assume that we're very narrow-minded and unthinking. So we don't have any answers to hard questions. We don't really have a solid enough truth to hang on to, to enter into deep conversation as we look across to the other hill and see the temples of many gods and goddesses. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul standing in Athens and taking this posture of withdrawing? Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Me too. Good for you. Well, that's about all I have to say. Uh, Okie dokie, uh, I got to go now. Believe in Jesus. Okay, bye. If you're taking that approach, you would never say the sorts of things that Paul was able to say in verses 30 and 31. You would never say, God commands all people everywhere to repent. You would never say, 
God is going to evaluate the moral compass of the whole world through one man named Jesus. That's the kind of thing that would make you anxious, make you sweat, make you want to run away if withdrawing is the approach we take to our neighbors. There's another approach we could take besides flight, and it's called fight. Dominate. You're not a test, I'm afraid of failing. I know I'm going to pass. You're a task I got to accomplish. You're an enemy to be conquered. I am going to adopt a win-at-all-costs approach. I've learned a way to share good news about Jesus, and I'm going to force it on you whether you want to hear it or not, whether I know you or not, whether this is the right time for the conversation or not. I've got this one-size-fits-all mentality, and I'm going to apply it to every person, every time, no matter what. I am going to value truth over relationship. I'm going to speak the truth. No matter whether there's a relational foundation for this conversation, no matter whether I know what's going on in your world, in your life, I'm just going to say it my way, when at all costs, and if I have my say, I'm satisfied. Now, a whole bunch of people are going to expect this of Christians in our world, right? Because, because a lot of people assume that Christians are mean-spirited bullies, they don't expect love. Kind of an irony there, right? That we'd be talking about Jesus, who is love in human flesh, love incarnate, but doing it in a way that's not loving at all. Again, put yourself back on that hill, the Areopagus, the Apostle Paul, saying, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are dead wrong. Unknown God. Seriously, is that the best you can do? I got three simple questions for you. Do you know that you're a sinner? Do you acknowledge Jesus as your Savior? Are you willing to commit yourself to Him as Lord? I'm not going to bother taking the time to, to, to ask whether you understand the same thing I mean when I say sinner. I'm not going to ask the question of what would it mean to have a Savior? And what do I mean by Lord? No. I'm not going to take time for all that. One size fits all. These are my three questions. Answer them right here on the spot. Somebody taking that approach, can, can you imagine them saying the sorts of things Paul did in verses 27 and 28? That, hey, you know what? God is actually not far from you. God is actually... He's put us in the world in such a way that we could seek after Him. And you know what? I've been reading some of your poets, and they speak like this too. Somebody who wants to dominate is rarely going to slow down long enough to even listen to what's happening in the poets of others. We'll talk more about that next week, but you get the picture that what Jesus is actually calling us to is not fight and it's not flight. It's not that we would dominate. It's not that we would withdraw. It's that we would engage with our neighbors. I don't see you as a test I'm about to fail. I don't see you as an obstacle I have to overcome or an enemy I have to defeat. Because of the good news about Jesus, I see you as a neighbor 
to be loved, a friend to be cared for. My approach isn't win at all costs or play it safe. Because of the good news about Jesus and the way that he loved me, no matter what it took, I'm willing to engage with other people with this, this attitude that says, I will love you whatever it takes. If I have to read your poets, I'll do it. If I have to learn about your city, I'll do it. If I have to study the temples and learn the names of the gods and goddesses, I'll do it. If I have to listen to your questions, I'll do it. Whatever it takes, I'll love you. Because I'm not going to put relationship over truth or truth over relationship. I understand that in Christ, truth and relationship are married to one another. I can't be in a relationship with Jesus unless I know truth about him. But if I know truth about him, it will affect my relationship with him and with everyone else. In fact, I believe what Jesus said, that loving God and loving neighbor go hand in hand. So if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna speak truth about God, I have to do it in a way that involves loving my neighbor. This is what it would mean to engage people rather than to withdraw or to dominate. Sometimes when we talk about evangelism, about sharing good news with other people, it makes some of us panic. It's a test, and I'm going to fail. I'm out of here. <laughs> Withdraw. Or we've, we've heard so many models and descriptions of evangelism that are all 100% domineering. I'm going to learn a way, and I'm going to make other people listen to what I have to say. Here's a better way. Here's a way that's rooted in the gospel. Confidence in the gospel. See, withdrawal is actually ultimately grounded in confidence in my own ability. And if my confidence in my ability to speak good news about Jesus is low, I am out of here. I treasure your approval, and I'm not going to say anything that I think you would disapprove of, so I'm just going to pull back from deep conversations about Jesus. Dominating, same kind of idea. My confidence is in my ability. My confidence in my ability is very high. I got this. I treasure my accomplishment. I have a task to do. I'm on a mission and I'm gonna get it done even though I have to chew you up, beat you up, spit you out in the end versus confidence and the reality of who Jesus is. When we engage with other people, our engagement comes from this place of confidence. I know who Jesus is. I know who Jesus is, so I don't have to worry about passing a test. Jesus loves me even if I failed the test. I know who Jesus is. And, and, and Jesus loved me when I was his enemy, so I don't have to view you as my enemy. I treasure the work of Jesus. I treasure the work that Jesus does through his Holy Spirit so that, for example, in Athens, some people heard about the resurrection and they laughed. Verse 32 says, some mocked. But others said, I want to hear more. And then others actually believed this good news. One of them was a woman named Damaris. 
One of them was a member of the council himself, Dionysius the Areopagite, one of the guys who was in charge of guarding Athenian culture against strange things, came to see that this new Savior, Jesus, is, he is the one who has come into our world so that I don't have to grope toward God. When I engage with my neighbors, I have confidence that the Holy Spirit is doing work in our world. He is at work in you, the person I'm speaking to. And when I speak about Jesus, he's also at work in me. I treasure that work, and that's where my confidence lies. You may never find yourself standing on a hill overlooking a city with a council listening to you to decide whether or not Jesus is going to become a part of the fabric of that city. You may not find yourself in an Areopagus moment. But because of who Jesus is and because of where we live and when we live, every one of us is going to find ourselves having moments to speak and answer the question, is Jesus narrow-minded and unthinking? Is Jesus a bully or a bigot? And if he's not like that, are his people who claim to know him, are they like that? We're all going to have these moments, these opportunities to engage with our neighbors, to be missionaries, ready, not to withdraw, not to pick a fight and dominate, but to enter into relationship with people just as Jesus entered into our world out of love for us. We can speak good news about him, not because we're guaranteed to get it right, not even because everybody's guaranteed to agree with us. We can speak good news about him because our confidence is in him. Let's take a moment and pray together. Lord Jesus, grow our faith. We want to trust you more than we do. We, we find it hard to live in a world where speaking about you is sometimes a guarantee that there's going to be tension, disagreement, awkwardness. But you're not intimidated by those things. We pray that we wouldn't be either. Make us ready to serve you. Make us ready to love other people as you have loved us. We pray in your name. Amen.